Welcome to Jonathan on Money, the personal finance podcast that brings you the latest insights and strategies to help you achieve your financial goals. I'm your host, Jonathan I. Shankman. On this podcast, we'll cover everything from investing, financial planning, retirement, and behavioral finance. I'll share advice and practical tips to help you make the most of your money. So whether you're just starting out or looking to take your finances to the next level, Jonathan on Money is here to help. Let's dive into this week's show. Welcome to this week's episode of Shankman on Money. This week, my opening talking points will discuss two important topics. The first is about going away on a lavish Passover program. I'll speak beyond whether it's prudent and discuss some important lessons about wealth and money that extend beyond just luxury vacations. My next setup, set of talking points this week will cover life insurance. So many people I know are hustled, and there's really no other way of putting it. They are literally pushed to purchase life insurance products that they may not need. I'll discuss some perspective on life insurance, if you actually need more coverage, and what type of coverage may make sense for you. As always, I will spend the last half of the episode answering listener questions. With that, let's jump into this week's talking points. First, I'd like to share an email I received about after Passover this year. This will help set the stage for my remarks. The email read, Hi, Jonathan. Leading up to Pesach and over the holiday itself, I was inundated on social media with pictures from upscale Pesach programs. The pictures were five-star hotels and resorts, an overabundance of food, exotic excursions, and world-class entertainment. Some people likely spent six, six figures to take their family on one of these programs. Is it wrong for people to go on such lavish Pesach programs? So this question has multiple components. Let, let me take the time to discuss each one of them individually. The first component is whether it's in the spirit of the holiday. An important element that you seem to be questioning is whether the excesses you described is in the spirit of, of Pesach itself. This is a fair question, but beyond my scope of expertise as a financial advisor. I'll defer to your local rabbi to weigh in on the best way to celebrate Passover and whether going on an exotic getaway is problematic. Is it financially prudent? This aspect of your question is within my wheelhouse and is a topic which I feel very strongly. I don't oppose lavish vacations. In fact, as long as someone is living within their means, saving for their future, and giving tzedakah or charity, they should be able to go on the most extravagant and over-the-top vacation that they want. If luxury travel is something that you thoroughly enjoy, then you should do it. Remember, money is not meant to be hoarded. It is meant to be used to help you achieve your goals and live the life that you want. On the other side of the coin, borrowing money to go on one of these programs is imprudent and may be financially devastating. One must either pay for the program in full, find a generous family member like parents or in-laws that are willing to foot the bill or stay home. Using credit card debt or cash out home refinance, a home equity line of credit or other forms of borrowing in order to go on a vacation should never happen. The next part of your question is differentiating between paid influencers and everybody else. Some of the attendees who share the most about their Passover programs are influencers. For those who may not be familiar with the term, an influencer is a person with the ability to influence potential buyers of a product or service by promoting or recommending item on social media. Influencers are marketers and they are just doing their job. In lieu of a traditional salary, some influencers are compensated by being able to bring their family along for Pesach vacation. If you're getting tired of the content and can't stand to see another video clip of a buffet lunch, 24-hour tea room, or pictures of their kids in matching swimsuits at sunset by the pool with palm trees in the background, 
then simply unfollow or block the influencer from your social media feed. There's no need to get worked up about it. This is how these folks make a living and anything they post should be treated as a sales pitch. The regular program attendees, folks who are not influencers, who are continuously sharing pictures, is a different discussion. This leads me to my next point, being sneeze about money. The essence of your question, whether you intended it or not, is about sneeze. Rabbi Jeremy Weeder, a Rosh Hashiva at Yeshiva University, addressed this topic during his interview on the Kosher Money podcast a few weeks ago. He eloquently described the concept of sneas, which means modesty or privacy, as it relates to money. Typically, this construct is solely discussed in the context of how men and women dress. However, as he described, it applies equally to other areas of life, noting that according to the rabbis, everything should be private unless there's a reason for it to be public. The concept is particularly relevant when it comes to vacation. The biggest issue with Pesach programs is not the luxury. It's broadcasting your vacation to the world via social media. For many people, half the fun of going away is letting everyone know that they went away. This may sound innocent enough, but this lack of sneers exasperates the already prevalent issue in the from community of trying to keep up with the Goldsteins. Aside from causing general unhappiness, this may also unintentionally pressure people to overextend themselves financially. This is true regardless of your level of wealth, but it is especially problematic for many people who are struggling financially. The issue of Tznias is not limited to going away for Pesach. It is equally applicable to yeshiva break plans, summer trips, home remodeling, and other aspects of life. Leading up to winter break, I had a myriad of business meetings with from families in different parts of the country. At some point during many of these conversations, a discussion of where I'm going on yeshiva break came up, and apparently Panama was the popular locale last year. This need and desire to share our vacation plans with the world is far from ideal. Though it is not solely responsible, social media for all its merits is one of the primary drivers of this brazenness. People work hard to be able to go away on holiday. They have every right to enjoy it to its fullest. At the same time, a helpful perspective is to remember that everything we have comes from God. We're simply stewards of the money that God has given us. It's incumbent upon us to behave in a manner that is appropriate and dignified for a God-fearing person. Hopefully, the lesson of Tzniyas can extend past the way we dress and influence how we conduct all aspects of our lives, including how we vacation. The next point I want to cover is about life insurance. And I get asked about life insurance regularly, and it pains me how often unsavory and aggressive salespeople hustle life insurance products that are inappropriate for the customer. Let me read a question I got recently that will set the stage for my next talking point. The email read, my college roommate just started in the insurance business. He's been aggressively pushing me to buy more life insurance. I told him that I have adequate coverage. He said I'm grossly uninsured and no one ever said on their deathbed that they regret having extra life insurance. My question is how much insurance does one actually need and what type of insurance makes the most sense? I just want to make sure I'm doing what's right for my family without getting hustled into buying something I don't need. So life insurance is an integral piece of the financial planning puzzle. However, since I don't know this individual's specific situation or current insurance coverage, I'll answer by providing more of a general overview of the life insurance landscape. Hopefully this framework, which I'm about to lay out, can guide all listeners to the correct decision when it comes to their life insurance needs. First, what is life insurance? Before delving into the more involved question about life insurance, it's worth reviewing what it is and why it's important. Life insurance is a contract between an insurance company and a policy owner. 
A life insurance policy guarantees the insurer will pay a sum of money to the named beneficiaries when the insured person dies in exchange for premiums paid by the policyholder during their lifetime. This is a way to ensure that if someone were to pass away, those who depend on their income, like a spouse or a child, will receive a sum of money to provide for them financially. <clears throat> I'm certain that any family with young kids can appreciate the importance of obtaining proper life insurance coverage to protect their family's ability to maintain their lifestyle and pay their bills in the event of a family's breadwinner's untimely passing. Next point is how much life insurance does one need? In order to determine how much coverage you need, it's important to do a needs analysis. This is just a fancy way of saying that you need to determine how much money your family requires to pay their annual expenses for a predetermined number of years. Major expenses should be considered to include mortgage, utilities, yeshiva, or private tuition, and food. It's important to factor in that some of these expenses, like mortgage and yeshiva tuition, will go away over time. Additionally, the analysis should consider your various streams of income, other assets, and existing insurance coverage. Remember, the purpose of life insurance is not to enrich your family. Rather, it's to ensure that loved ones can maintain their lifestyle after a breadwinner's death. There may be an instance where a family doesn't actually need life insurance at all. If a family has adequate liquid assets to meet their living expenses for a multi-decade time horizon, then insurance may not be needed. This may, be in, in a, this may not be in a common scenario, but it's worth pointing out that buying life insurance is not a foregone conclusion for every family. It's also worth noting that there are various creative uses for life insurance as well. Some examples include business succession planning, charitable giving, estate planning, providing liquidity to the deceased person's estate, and a hybrid policy that includes long-term care coverage. For the purposes of my comments today, we will focus primarily on the typical family's life insurance considerations. These other more sophisticated strategies that apply to a smaller portion of the population and require a more in-depth discussion that maybe we'll have at another time. Now, how do you find a suitable life insurance policy? Once you determine how much coverage you need, it's time to find a policy that fits your needs. The question usually boils down to choosing between term and permanent life insurance. As the name suggests, a term policy will provide coverage for a set number of years. On that term, term is up, coverage stops, and the death benefit will no longer be paid out. People often choose a term that will lapse once major expenses like a mortgage and yeshiva tuition are behind them and their kids are old enough to be self-sufficient. The thinking behind this strategy is that at that point, insurance proceeds wouldn't be needed to cover expenses. The premiums associated with this type of policy can be structured to be the same or level for the entire life of the insurance policy. Premiums on a level term insurance policy will almost always be much lower than most permanent insurance policies, which may be helpful from a cash flow perspective. The other types of insurance is permanent, which refers to life insurance policies that do not expire. The two primary types of permanent life insurance are whole life and universal life, with universal life offering more flexibility on payments and features. Most permanent life insurance combines a death benefit with a savings portion. The creative uses for life insurance that I mentioned in the previous comment may necessitate permanent life insurance. However, if you don't have one of these needs and you determine that insurance coverage really isn't required for the rest of your life, then term insurance is likely the best solution for your family given its significantly lower premiums. There are a myriad of excellent life insurance companies, so don't feel limited to one provider. It's important to have your insurance professional shop the market for the most competitive pricing on the most appropriate policy. 
The next point is important and is when you should be skeptical. Some of the biggest challenges with the life insurance buying process is how these products get sold. If you happen to navigate the landscape knowledgeably and avoid the unscrupulous salespeople looking for a quick commission, will save you a lot of money and hardship later. These are some things to look out for. One, overly complicated products. At its heart, life insurance is an easy to understand product that provides for a specific need. If an insurance agent is offering you solutions that seem too complicated, have too, mo too many moving parts and a variety of features, then trust your gut and find something simpler or another agent to work with. Obtaining proper life insurance should not be overly complicated or difficult to understand. Two, insurance pitched as an investment. I said it before and I'll say it again. The ultimate purpose of insurance is to provide financially for one, loved ones in the event of a breadwinner's untimely passing. Investing within a life insurance policy is extremely expensive and inefficient. A diversified portfolio of low-cost mutual funds of your choosing is far cheaper. Additionally, tax-deferred growth can seamlessly be achieved through maximizing contributions to a retirement plan IRA health savings account and 529 plans. If you have more money left over after that, then open a brokerage account. You won't owe tax unless you made money on your investment through dividends or capital gains. Three, borrowing against the policy. If someone borrows against their insurance policy, any remaining loan balance will be subtracted from the death benefit when they pass, which may cost their family the coverage they need. Additionally, it may take many years before there's adequate cash value built up in the policy to be able to borrow against. Plus, the interest rate on these life insurance loans may be less competitive than a regular bank. In short, traditional financing options are likely much better option if needed. For insurance professionals who only sell their company's products, you should work with an agent that can price out the entire market. There are many great products available with highly ranked insurers. Don't let your insurance agent's sales quota limit your ability to find the most competitively priced product. Five, overly aggressive salespeople. Any salesman who claims that insurance is a solution to all your financial needs is either uninformed, brainwashed, or both. There are plenty of high caliber insurance professionals out there. The best ones first take the time to understand your full financial picture so they can engage in a knowledgeable discussion about where insurance may fit into your life. Anyone who doesn't take the time to understand your individual situation before trying to sell you a product should be avoided. At the end of the day, when it comes to life insurance, the key is to evaluate your own needs and use the framework I just discussed to determine what is required to protect your family. If your friend keeps pressuring you to purchase unnecessary life insurance coverage, you need to be firm in your response when telling him you won't be working together. This direct response may seem uncomfortable, but so is getting aggressively solicited for a product that you don't need. One tough conversation may save you hours of pointless and frustrating conversations in the future. Okay, those are the talking points this week. As a reminder, you can be notified of all my recent articles, webinars, and all the other work I put out by subscribing to my free monthly newsletter at shankmanwealth.com forward slash newsletter. Now let's jump into this week's financial questions. If you do have a question, feel free to submit it to me at jonathan at shankmanwealth.com and it may be answered in a future episode. Okay, first question. I managed my own money when I first started working from about 2013 to 2018. In 2018, I moved to a financial advisor because I have more money and I have more serious planning issues that I need to work through. The issue is my performance when I managed my own money was awesome. This advisor's performance has been terrible. I'm considering moving unless I'm missing something. 
So I don't know who you work with and how you're invested. So I can't comment specifically on that, but what you're missing, and this is huge, is the time when you were investing. When, when invested from 2018 through 2012 to 2018, there was a massive bull market. However, when your advisor has been investing, the market has been shopping and down. When it comes to investing, your timing is everything. Since no one can time when to go into the market or accurately decide when they start investing, this all comes down to luck. For example, boomers that entered the workforce and started investing in the early 80s experienced the biggest bull market in history. For Gen Xers who started investing at the peak of the dot-com bubble, they experienced a massive drawdown, particularly with the NASDAQ falling around 80% and taking 15 years to recover. During the same time frame, the S&P 500 experienced a lost decade, which individual family members can have radically different performance. Even, uh, I'm sorry, the S&P 500 through 2000 to 2010 experienced a lost decade, which included the great financial crisis where it didn't experience any return at all. Even individual family members can have radically different performance depending when they enter the market. I have a husband and wife work clients the wife started investing at the end of February 2020, and the husband's cash wasn't invested until March, the end of March of that year. The market crashed for six weeks, and the wife had a high single-digit return for the year, while the husband's account was up over 40%. In summation, it's not that you are a skilled investor. You probably aren't. It's your timing that has caused this difference in returns and should be factored into your decision process. Next question, what do you think of ESG investing? I think ESG is nonsense, and that was developed by the marketing departments and major asset management firms to collect more assets. For those who are not in the know, ESG stands for environmental, social, and governance, and some investors want these criteria reflected into the companies they invest in. First off, why are these three things grouped together? A company can have one, but not the other two. There are three distinct and not necessarily related factors. Additionally, there's no good criteria to measure these things. Finally, divesting from companies which you don't approve of is much less impactful. If you own companies with the bad records in any of these three areas, as a shareholder, you can vote for change. Excluding these companies from your portfolio will further exasperate the problems. The only merit I see to this philosophy is it may help some investors stick with their strategy because they believe in it. The ability to buy and hold investments for the long term is close to the impossible for most investors. If buying into some marketing propaganda helps you stay the course, then there is some merit to that. Next question, which people, with people losing their life savings in the market, why not just invest in indexed universal life insurance? Because it's total trash, to be blunt. But let me take a step back. The market has been lousy over the past couple of years. These things happen. The market will bounce back. It always does. As long as you were diversified, then you weren't even close to being wiped out. Now back to talking about indexed universal life. For background, universal life policies put a portion of your policyholders' premium payments towards annual renewable term life insurance, with the remainder added to the cash value of the policy after fees are deducted. On a monthly or annual basis, the cash value is credited with interest based on increases in an equity index. Some of the main issues with these policies include the caps on returns and the fact that there are no guarantees of what the premium amounts will be in the future. This means that you have to be comfortable riding out fluctuations and returns while also budgeting for potentially higher premiums. This is the last thing any breadwinner wants to, is an increase in premiums down the road and risk their family not having proper life insurance coverage because they can't pay the premium. 
Also, there are a myriad of fees, which include premium expense charges, administrative expenses, rider fees, commissions, surrender charges, etc. All these fees and various costs can detract from the rate of return offered by your policy. So it's a bad investment product and a bad insurance product. It's far better for most people to buy level term and invest the difference. I have a crummy 401k plan at work. What do, you, what do I recommend? I suggest you participate in the plan, get the possible match, and do the best you can with the investments that you're offered. Regardless of what may be bad about your 401k plan, you can't beat the seamlessness of it in terms of how easy it is to put money away a significant amount of tax advantage in a tax advantaged way. Furthermore, most 401ks have at least a mediocre target date fund. You can park your cash there if all your other funds are terrible or insanely expensive. The other option is to, to explore your company has an in-service 401k rollover where you can move money out of your current 401k and into an IRA where you can potentially lower fees and have a larger select selection of investment options. However, if your plan is really that terrible, I highly doubt they will have this feature. Next question. I've been in the in I've been in cash since mid 2020. I'm just too nervous to get back into the market. If I'm 55 years old, is it too late to get back in? Does it even make sense if I plan to retire relatively soon? There is a lot more information I need to gather in order to be able to give you a specific answer. But the short answer to your question is yes, you should probably have a meaningful amount of your portfolio in the market, even though retirement is around the corner. If you live to your 90s or longer, which is quite common, you need part of your portfolio to outpace inflation. Stocks are the place to do this. That being said, you should balance this risk with a bond tent, which is a few years worth of cash in very short duration bonds that will remain relatively stable if the market tanks in the early stages of your retirement. The combination of these two elements are the cornerstone of any investment portfolio as they approach retirement. As I always say, if you are unable to over overcome the psychological hurdle and get your funds into the market or don't know how to deploy your assets correctly, then hire someone to help you. Hanging out on the sideline is never the right approach and can prove to be devastating later. How should my portfolio look when I retire in terms of breakdown of asset allocation? This is a very personalized question and it'll be different for every individual and depends on a variety of factors. How old are you? How much money do you have? How much money do you spend? What are your other income sources? What are your goals? What is your appetite for risk? What is your time horizon? Where do you live? When these questions are answered, you can design a portfolio that actually makes sense for your needs. These days, everybody wants a quick fix. However, in the, the decumulation phase of retirement planning, there are no shortcuts and taking time to plan properly is essential. And yes, this likely means spending money to hire someone to get it done right. One piece of generic advice that all retirees should consider when constructing a suitable retirement portfolio is to maintain a sufficient cash cushion within their portfolio. This will help mitigate the sequence of returns risk if the market crashes at the start of your retirement. Next question, I support my wife and kids, but also support my parents. It's getting harder and harder to do financially. Any suggestions? You are part of what is known as the sandwich generation. You are getting squeezed from the older generation and the younger generation. Here are some tips to consider include, one, figure out a way to minimize the expenses of your parents. If they can't afford their own care, they may qualify for some type of government support. If it's available, then you should take it. You should also try to get rid of unnecessary expenses, like downsizing, get rid of cars, services they don't use, et cetera. 
you can finance your parents' lifestyle, but that also means you get to help determine what type of lifestyle they're living so it's easier on your cash flow. Number two, make sure that you have enough cash on hand for emergencies. You don't want to have to borrow funds if you have an unexpected expense. Number three, pay yourself first. Before you spend on any discretionary, discretionary items, make sure you are preparing for the future by saving for retirement. This can be done tax efficiently, so this act of saving may help with your taxes as well. Four, understand what you need to cut. If you're being stretched financially, there's certain goals that may be nice, but are lower priority can be cut. For example, college savings should be eliminated if you're having a hard time saving for retirement. It's far less important. You obviously shouldn't be giving your kids other cash gifts either. Other discretionary items like dining out, luxury cars, and lavish vacation, vacation should be avoided. Doing these things may free up cash flow and give you some breathing room. Next question. I work with a financial advisor who developed an investment strategy for us. My question is, why not transfer the funds to Robinhood where I don't need to pay management fees after she updates the strategy for us so we have the, op we have the appropriate allocation but don't need to pay her fee? You may think this is a good strategy, but let me explain to you why it isn't. One, the strategy may need to be changed and you don't know how to do it. Two, an advisor will help you within the psychological aspect of sticking with the strategy. For example, when the market crashes or is choppy and you want to do something silly, they will help you not do that. Three, financial planning or investing questions will likely come up in the future. Your advisor is not going to talk to you if you're not paying her. And four, thievery is frowned upon in our society. To ask someone to do work for you and not pay them is literally theft. I'm not sure if this is a new concept to you, but stiffing a professional on their bill for work they did for you is wrong and unethical. Be ethical and pay your bills. That's my advice for you. Next question. Structured notes seem to carry little to no risk. What am I missing? For those who are not in the know, a structured product is a prepackaged structured finance investment strategy based on a single security, a basket of securities, options, indices, commodities, debt and issuance, or foreign currencies, and to a lesser extent, derivatives. What they do is they allow investors to participate when the investment goes up and is supposed to protect them when the investment goes down. The downside with structure notes is, first of all, you're taking issuer risk. Whoever issues the product must be in business for the duration of the product. When investment bank goes belly up, and that's not exactly an uncommon occurrence as we've seen in the recent news, so do their structured products. Two, they're illiquid. Three, they are expensive. Four, they limit your upside potential because of fees and caps placed in their performance potential. Five, the complexity of the return calculations means that it is difficult to determine how the structured product would perform versus simply owning the underlying asset. And six, there's a lack of transparency in pricing. The investment bank fees are hidden, the product pricing and difficult for the customer to discern. In short, everything carries risk. And before you utilize structured notes, you should understand what you are getting into. Okay, that's it for financial questions this week. Again, feel free to email me with any questions you may have, and I might answer them on a future episode. Now for this week's quote, which is from Winston Churchill, the great British prime minister who said, we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Churchill attempts to make a distinction between making a living and making a life. While it's very important to make a living from what we get, like income, salaries, bonuses, et cetera, it's also incredibly important to life to be generous and to give up your time and money. Giving adds to the quality of one's life. To take the lesson one step further, money is a very useful tool. However, 
If you don't use it to help others, like your family, community, and the world around you, are you really living your richest, most meaningful life? I believe the answer is no. The ability to give of yourself is one of the ways to live a life of meaning, and this is something that, you, that making just more money and accumulating more assets cannot accomplish. And with that, it's a wrap for this week's show. Any questions or comments, feel free to reach out directly to me via email. I love hearing from my listeners. And finally, the secret to financial success is no secret at all. It's to spend less than you make, invest the difference prudently, and ignore all the noise. See you next time on Shankman on Money. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. I hope you were able to take away a nugget or two to apply to your own life. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast so you can be alerted whenever new episodes drop. If you'd like to submit a question that may be answered in a future show, please email me at jonathan at parkbridgewealth.com. Be sure to check out all Jonathan on Money content, including all of my articles, webinars, and videos by following me at Jonathan on Money on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Finally, if you like what you heard today, please rate the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps ensure that other personal finance enthusiasts can find the show as well. Thank you and catch you on the next episode of Jonathan on Money.